Last week we reminded ourselves that all of us as believers have a high and holy calling to be the church both out there and in here. In here meaning anything under the organized umbrella of Lincoln Brand. So be part of the life of a local church. Out there is anything beyond that. To be the church at work, to be the church at school, to be the church in your neighborhood, uh, where you do your hobbies. All of us have a high and holy calling. Our text this morning helps us to think through some expectations, both out there and in here. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with us to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both the Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. So in our text last week, we were introduced to a man by the name of Stephen, one of the seven chosen for specific responsibilities. So we already know he's a man of reputation, good reputation. He's full of the spirit and he's full of wisdom. Now he moves to becoming the main character in our story this morning. And the text tells us that he was also full of grace and power. It's really important as we go through the story this morning to keep in mind this description of Stephen. Stephen was not some hothead that was going off on the council. Actually, just the opposite. But he was called by God to speak the truth to the Jerusalem council. And ultimately, his obedience will cost him his life. The text also tells us that he was performing great signs and wonders. It's very unusual to find anyone outside of the 12 apostles who were doing signs and wonders, but there were a few, and Stephen is named as one of those. Jerusalem had multiple synagogues, and some of them were Greek-speaking synagogues. This particular one that's mentioned of the freedmen is referring to Hellenistic Jews that lived outside of the land in Greek-speaking environments who were slaves. At some point, they gained their freedom. They made their way back to Jerusalem, and they attended this 
Greek-speaking synagogue specifically for these freed slaves. So they get into a debate with Stephen, but they're no match for Stephen, filled with the Spirit of God. So as happens today, if you can't win the argument, you start slinging mud. So that's exactly what happens. They rally some false witnesses to lie about Stephen. They go before the council, and now the council is going to hear the charges. Verse 15 is an interesting verse. Hard to figure out exactly what it means, but I think the point in the text is to remind us that Stephen was a man filled with the Spirit of God. He's standing before the religious leaders of his day. But the text is saying Stephen had the presence of God, not the council. Chapter 7, verse 1. The high priest said, are these things so? Which then causes Stephen to launch the longest sermon in the book of Acts. So we have a lot of material to cover and we are really going to go for it. It's hard to organize this, but the best way to understand it is that Stephen is making a case that this has always been about God who is mysterious and unconventional in his ways and a remnant who have always been willing to listen and obey and a lot of other people who are determined to not listen and rebel. Verse 2, and he said, hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God moved him to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. So Stephen's sermon is going to be a rehearsal of the history of the Hebrew people. Starting with Abraham. Abraham was an idolatrous pagan living in Ur of the Chaldees. When God called him to leave Ur and to go to a land, he would tell them. In that time, Ur would have been a very modern city for the day. So imagine the conversation Abraham has with his wife, honey, we're going to leave and we're going to go somewhere else. Well, where are we going? I don't really know. God just said, leave, and he'll show us. So with remarkable faith and obedience, Abraham chooses to obey and to leave. God promises to make him into a great nation, promises that through a seed of Abraham, all of the world will be blessed. 
But Stephen reminds us that never in Abraham's lifetime did he ever actually possess the land. Not one square foot. But he believed the promise when God said, Someday your descendants will possess the land. And Abraham believed that. There is a little problem, though. Abraham had no descendants. He and Sarah were long past childbearing years and had no children. It wouldn't be until Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old that God would finally fulfill his promise and give Abraham and Sarah a child. If that isn't enough, God says, oh, by the way, one more thing. Before your descendants inherit the land, they're going to end up in a foreign land. And they will be there 400 years. Oh, and they'll be slaves there. But I promise, I'll eventually get them out, get them to the land, and they'll possess the land. Again, with remarkable faith and courage, Abraham believed. The covenant was sealed with the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. The basic idea was, Abraham, there's no way you can pull this off. So this is something God will have to do. So the removal of the flesh was a way of saying, we can't accomplish this. Only God can do this. And Abraham said, I believe. And that's why he circumcised Isaac and Jacob And then Jacob has 12 sons. Verse 9. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. So Jacob has 12 sons. So this is now the growing family of Abraham. But one of those sons, Joseph, was sold by his brothers into slavery. He was hauled away into Egypt. He ends up in prison, falsely accused in Egypt, and it appears story over. But through an amazing series of events, Joseph goes from prison to becoming the number two most powerful person in Egypt. How is that possible? Well, the text tells us, God was with him. God is always up to something, but in the most unpredictable, unconventional ways. Verse 11. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So there's a famine in the land, Jacob and his family are about to starve to death. They hear there's grain in Egypt. They have no idea that God is three steps ahead as Joseph there ready to save the day. 
The sons go. They don't know they've encountered their brother Joseph. They go back home. They go a second time. Many scholars see that as a picture. Jesus came the first time. You didn't recognize him. He will come a second time. You won't miss him the second time. And uh, that may or may not be the intention here, but it's an interesting consideration. So Joseph reveals himself to them, has plenty of food, invites Jacob and the whole family to come to Egypt uh, in order to be the deliverer, in order to save them. But ultimately, Joseph dies in Egypt. Jacob dies in Egypt, but they aren't buried there. Their bones are taken back up into the land of promise and buried in a cave that Abraham purchased when Sarah died. Because Abraham did not possess a foot of ground, he had to buy a cave to bury Sarah in the land that he believed God they would one day give them. Verse 17, but as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. And there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learnings of the Egyptians. He was a man of power and words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered into his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them he treat, uh, being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together. And he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you the ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So the Hebrew people are blessed by God. They become larger and larger, more and more powerful. The Pharaoh becomes concerned that they're going to become too powerful. So he starts killing Hebrew babies. In the midst of that, Moses is born. Moses is raised three months by his mother, then placed in the reeds. And of all things, it would be Pharaoh's daughter who would find him. And she would keep him. Israel's deliverer would be raised under Pharaoh's nose in his household. It's interesting the text tells us he was educated in the finest schools in Egypt. We think we're seeing where this is going. He's raised in the family of Pharaoh. He's going to be powerful. He has all this education. He's going to rise up. And he's going to deliver his people. At the age of 40, he goes out to visit his people. 
He sees one of the Hebrews being abused by an Egyptian, and he kills the Egyptian, thinking that the people will see that he has come to be their deliverer and set them free. So he goes out the next day, and he sees two Hebrews fighting. And he tries to break them up. He asks them why they're doing that. And the Hebrews say, listen, fella, who made you the boss? Who said you were in charge? And then they go a step farther. Are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? At that moment, Moses knew he was busted and had to get out of town. We thought we knew where this story was going. Moses would be the great deliverer. Instead, he ends up fleeing into the wilderness of Midian. Verse 30, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. As he approached to look more closely, there came a voice of the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This is now 40 years later. Moses would spend 40 years in the wilderness school of leadership before he's ready to lead the people out of Egypt. Of all things, God shows up in a burning bush and talks to Moses and tells Moses that he is raising him up to deliver his people. The Jewish council, the Jewish religious people, thought that God was with them because they possessed the land, the law, and the temple. Part of what Stephen is going to tell him is you don't understand any of that. These great moments happened outside of the land. It was about obedience and trusting God to be faithful. So here's Moses standing on holy ground, not because it was the promised land, but because God was there and God was calling him to deliver the people. Verse 35, this Moses, whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of an angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from the brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. 
At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rampha, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon." So notice the emphasis, this Moses whom you rejected is the same Moses that God sent back to deliver you. So again, you have first visit rejected, second visit, it will be different. The uh, argument of the Jewish council is that they revere Moses and they revere the law. What Stephen is saying, that's never been the case. You rejected Moses. Our forefathers rejected him. They rejected the law. They rejected what he brought from Mount Sinai. Uh, it was Moses that uh, prophesied that there would be a prophet like him who would come. Of course, that's a reference to Jesus, whom you have rejected. He went to Mount Sinai in order to receive the law, but our forefathers didn't want the law. They wanted to go back to Egypt, so they got Aaron to build a golden calf. They worshiped the gods of Egypt. The history of the Hebrew people has not been a history of revering Moses and the law. Just the opposite. It's been a history of rebellion and idolatry. Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and heaven is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? So now there's the reminder that the first temple, so to speak, was actually a tent version of the temple called the tabernacle. And it didn't appear in the land of promise. It appeared outside the land of promise in the wilderness. Again, it's arguing about this idea that we're the people of God because we have the land, we have the law, and we have the temple. And Stephen's making the argument, you don't understand any of these things. These great moments happened outside the land. You didn't revere Moses or the law, and you don't even understand the temple. So it started as the tabernacle. It wasn't until Moses, or I'm sorry, it wasn't until David conquered the land, brought peace to the land, took Jerusalem, that his son Solomon built the temple. It hasn't actually been in the land that long. 
But then again, you can't house God. You can't box God in a little building made with human hands. This idea that we're the special people of God because we own a piece of ground, because we have the law, and because we have the temple. What's about to happen is God is going to explode the church around the world. And the argument is you can't box God in a little building sitting there in Jerusalem. The entire universe is his temple. Verse 51, Stephen gets right to it. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. The religious leaders would have immediately understood the language stiff-necked because it's a language that the prophets used of the people of Israel. They were constantly rebelling. They were unwilling to listen. And the prophets called them stiff-necked, stubborn, bullheaded. What he's saying is you're just like them. This has been the history of the nation of Israel. Probably the worst insult he could give them is to call them uncircumcised. They're thinking that they are right with God because they've removed a little piece of flesh. But what Stephen is saying, but your hearts aren't circumcised. Your hearts are rebellious and hard and disobedient. You do not have ears to listen. Peter's tried to tell you, I'm trying to tell you, you don't really understand the land, you don't really understand the law, you don't really understand Moses, you don't really understand the temple. You don't really get any of this. Verse 54, now when they heard this, they repented and said, what must we do to be saved? Oh, wait a minute, that's not what it says. <laughs> now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. So they can't take anymore. They're gnashing their teeth. But in this remarkable moment, Stephen somehow sees into the heavens. 
Now, as a side note, I think this again gives some credibility to the idea that heaven isn't out there somewhere. It's more like a different dimension, a different frequency. You you couldn't see a billion miles out, but the heavens opened up and he was actually able to see the resurrected Christ at the right hand of the Father. It is very unusual to find Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He's typically seated in a Hebrew courtroom to be a witness you had to stand. The implication is probably that while the Jerusalem council is about to condemn him, Jesus is standing as a witness for Stephen, ready to welcome him home. Stephen actually tells them that he can see the Son of Man standing in the heavens. That's all they can take. They cover their ears, they rush him, they grab him, they haul him out of the city. One of the details worth noting is this probably isn't just an angry mob. According to the law, if someone was to be stoned officially, it began with the witnesses. And the witnesses would throw the first stones and then everyone else would join in. The idea that the witnesses left their robes at the feet of Saul is probably saying that's the procedure. They threw the first stones. Everyone joins in. Stephen sounds much like Jesus commending his spirit to God, asking for the forgiveness of his persecutors. And with that, he dies. It is interesting to note this introduction to a young man by the name of Saul. Chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul was in hearty agreement with the murder of Stephen. This is the beginning of the great persecution of the church that will drive the church out of Jerusalem and around the world. We'll talk more about that next week. Just a couple of things to wrap this up this morning. Stephen's history of the nation of the of Israel is really the story of humanity. You have God acting in unpredictable, unconventional ways. You have a remnant of people who are willing to listen and to believe and to obey. And then you have the majority of people who are determined not to listen, not to obey and to rebel. Jesus said it himself, there's two paths. Narrow is the path that leads to life and few will be those who find it. Broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many will be those who find it. 
When we think about being the church out there, it's helpful to understand this. You can have the best presentation of the gospel of anyone in the room. You can have all your apologetic arguments in place. You can be the best example of a Christian out there. But most people don't want it. They're not interested. They don't want to hear it. And oftentimes, it's the most religious people that are most difficult to reach. I've got my religion. I've got my belief. Don't talk to me. I don't care what you say. I don't care what the Bible has to say. They become stubborn and stiff-necked. Don't talk to me about it. Realistically, that's what we're going to encounter. We shouldn't be surprised by that. But in the story, we're reminded of a young man by the name of Saul. Who could have imagined in this moment in the story that that young man by the name of Saul, who was in hearty agreement with the murder of Stephen, would soon encounter the resurrected Christ and would become the most effective missionary church planter in the history of the church. You never know what God's up to. So we keep faithfully doing our part. And the rest is up to God. When we think of the expectations in here, it's helpful to remember as you go through this story, just how mysterious, how unconventional, how unpredictable God is. And how incredibly confusing that must have been for these great heroes of the faith. In the moment, so much of this could not have made any sense. Why would God do it this way? God is mysterious. He's unpredictable. It's hard to figure out what exactly God is up to. One of the great dangers for those of us that have been Christians a long time. We would never say this, but we start to think we have God figured out. This is the way it works. This is the way God does it. This is the way it's supposed to be. And if we aren't careful, it's just possible, just suggesting it's possible. We could get a little stubborn, a little bullheaded, a little stiff-necked. 
When that happens, we're going to miss the mysterious, unconventional, unpredictable things that God is doing. We need to have soft, obedient hearts that are open to what God may call us to do that may not be exactly what we were expecting. We need to have ears to hear. So we're sensitive to what God may be doing around us in moments like this. If we're going to dare to be the church, it will require soft, obedient hearts and ears to hear. Because I'm pretty sure whatever is next is probably not what we think it's going to be. And we'll need to dare to be the church. Our Father, we're thankful this morning that you are always faithful. But you also are unpredictable. You're mysterious. Who could have imagined how that story would unfold from Abraham to Jesus? Lord, may we be counted among the rebels uh, among the remnant that choose to believe that we trust you with soft hearts and ears to hear. May, may we be the church in a dark and needy world. In Jesus' name, amen.